Well, good morning, Doxa. My name is Ronnie, one of the pastors here. If you are uh, new or visiting, I just want to say, like, there are, there are so many of us here that would love to meet you. We're so glad that you're part of the service this morning. And, and seriously, if you look around and feel like I don't know anybody, there's 50 people that are feeling the same way. So don't, don't leave here without introducing yourself to someone. With that being said, why don't you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 23 through 33 this morning. 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 33. And while you're turning there, sometimes it's, it uh, makes sense at the beginning of a message to start with a, a joke or a story. But what I ended up landing on is uh, just saying, I need to tell you what's wrong with you. <laughs> okay, so we're going to start with that this morning. Because in order to really understand what Paul is going to say to us in 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 33... We do need to start with, with what is it that's actually wrong with us as human beings, okay? And I'm going to give it to you in, in the Latin, okay? Not to sound smart, but because when people talk about this, they often say it in the Latin. Okay, the Latin term for what's wrong with us is homo incurvitus in se, okay? Homo incurvitus in se, which literally means man curved in on himself, Okay, so no matter how good your posture is, sitting there in the chair, the, the reality of human sin, our condition is that we are incurvitous. We are curved in on ourselves. And so some of Christianity's greatest theologians like Augustine and Luther, they, they point to this and they say this is the essence of sin. A human being, a man or a woman, curved inward on him or herself. In the like, modern or, or secular way of talking about this, we, we talk about navel-gazing, right? Or, or just self-centeredness. And so I want to give you just two stories, two illustrations to show you a little bit about what this is and, and how it happened. And the first is just the Garden of Eden, right? We see at the beginning that there's a creator who created all things. And we see in Genesis 1 and 2, we preach through this in the fall, that he creates this, this beautiful world br- brimming with life. He puts humanity in it and tells them, like, this is, this is yours. Like, live in it and enjoy it for my glory, But what happened in the fall to sin is that as human beings reach for autonomy, right, independence from God, we end up falling into sin. We get banished from the garden. And the last scene of Genesis 2, you see Adam and Eve kind of walking out into what is now a a wilderness, right, a place of darkness and fear and scarcity. And so it's this movement from abundance in life to scarcity and wilderness, all because we reached for autonomy, now, the, the second picture comes from uh, Greek mythology. There's this guy in Greek mythology called Narcissus, okay? Has anybody heard of Narcissus before? It's where we get our term narcissism from. And there's like a whole crazy backstory to his life and everything as the story goes, but just kind of like the punchline of his story is that Narcissus is the man who falls in love with his own reflection, okay? And, and the myth goes that he's, he's literally sitting there for his whole life, hunched over on himself, staring at his own reflection in a lake, And he eventually falls in and drowns. And so the message is he literally was so self-absorbed that it killed him. This was Narcissus. And so we see the defining image of Eden was supposed to be abundance and life, but they got exiled out into the wilderness. There were all these flowing rivers of abundance, but now they're just out in like the thorns and, and the brambles out in the wilderness. And the defining image of Narcissus is this picture of, of scarcity, this, this reflection in the lake. And so we have the abundance of rivers, we have the scarcity of a lake. And for us, just like Adam and Eve wandering out of the garden into the scarcity of the wilderness, our whole life will be like this restless and fearful 
wandering in despair as long as we live curved in on ourselves. Homo incurvatus in se. And none of us need to do a ton of work, right, to kind of think in our head and search back to our past and just look at our reality and find examples of how we live self-absorbed, self-centered lives. But the good news of the gospel is that this is not how we have to live. Okay, this is actually in Colossians chapter 3, Paul, he says this is what Jesus Christ came into the world to rescue us from. Okay, in Colossians 3, he says, you've been raised with Christ and now you can put off the old self with its practices, right? Its self-absorbed practices. And you can put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of your creator. That's what Jesus Christ came into the world to do. The Latin term for like image of your creator is the imago Dei, the image of God. Human beings, we were meant to be image bearers of God, but you can't bear the image of God. You can't bear the imago Dei when you live in curvatus, right? They're literally opposites of each other. But Jesus Christ, he comes into the world to restore us as human beings to who God created us to be, not curved in on ourselves, but, but actually open. Okay, and in our text today, what Paul is, is doing is he's basically reaching in and, and grabbing a hold of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength and our perspective. So brace yourself. And he's going to try to pry us open. Okay, he's going to try to pry open our curved-in souls and, and make us open. So let's, let's read it. Let's see what he has to say. Verse 23, 1 Corinthians 10. He says, All things are lawful, but not all things are, are helpful. And notice the quotes. He's, he's quoting a phrase that they would say, all things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever's set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, hey, this is... This has actually been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of his conscience. Now I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Okay. So the first way that Paul, he's trying to pry our hearts open is by telling us, right, he's right there in the text, to intentionally leverage our lives and freedoms for the good of others. So when the Corinthians, they would say this phrase, all things are lawful, they were essentially saying, hey, I'm, I'm free to do whatever I want. And, and they're not even referring to sin. They're referring in this scenario actually to things that aren't sin, like eating meat that's been, been sacrificed to idols. And Paul kind of has dealt with this in, in previous chapters. And, and they kind of work through the theology that actually like this food is from God and they're free to eat it and enjoy it. But what Paul's doing here is he's not disagreeing with their theology. Right? He's not disagreeing with their theological conclusion, but he's saying, hey, your theology, it's, it's pointed in the wrong direction. It's serving the wrong purpose. He says, you're using your freedom to serve yourself and sometimes at the expense of your neighbor. And so what Paul's trying to do at the beginning is he's saying, hey, you need to add like another step to your decision-making process here. So it's not just, is it lawful for me? 
but it's also, is it helpful for others? Not just am I free to do this in my conscience, but does this action, this thing, does it build other people up? He's saying don't use your freedom in Christ only for your own benefit. That's incurvitous. But use it as a way to love and serve and build up the people around you. The verse 24, right? Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Verse 24, it's, it's the key principle. This is the heart posture that he is calling us for, the posture of heart that's not curved in in self-service, but it's actually opened up in love and service to others. And notice, he's not saying seek bad for yourself. He's saying seek the good of your neighbor above yourself, which oftentimes can mean like inconvenience, it can mean suffering, it can mean sacrifice of our freedom. He's saying, Corinthians, like God has given you freedoms and abilities and spiritual gifts and knowledge and good theology and privileges and opportunities and passions. Use them, but don't use them just on yourself. Use them for the greater good. Use them to build up the world around you. Use them to build up your brother, your sister, your neighbor, the church. And so let's think through this for a minute. Let's just apply this to some different areas of life. We think about dating, relationships, and marriage. Do I even need to say it? You got two incurvitous people in a relationship, two people that are incurved in on themselves. We all know what this feels like. It is a disaster. There's a path to nowhere. It's a, it's a path to, to conflict. It's a path to unmet expectations. But two people who have started to be opened up ready to serve one another, that's a, a opportunity, a recipe for love. Okay, you think about the workplace. So many ways that this applies in the workplace, but specifically if you're like a boss or a manager in the room, you've got people that are, you're leading, they look to you, you're their authority. I read a, a great quote by one of my favorite authors, Andy Crouch, this week in his book, Strong and Weak, and he says this. He says, leadership, it doesn't begin with a title or a position, it begins the moment you are concerned more about others flourishing than you are about your own. Because that's, that's leadership. That's verse 24 in action. Friendships, we've all got friends, we've all got relationships in here. What would it look like for your friendships to be more marked by building one another up rather than tearing each other down? Parenting. The great Lisa Warren one time told me that parenting, it's basically, it just squeezes the selfishness out of you, or you can, or you can fight it. Our church, I mean, we want Doxa to be a place, like I hope, especially if you're new, I hope you can just kind of come here and receive and benefit from the community and the, the word being preached and us singing and, and just kind of like come here and receive, but eventually for the sake of all of us, for the sake of you, for the sake of the good, we all need to move from being just not consumers, but actually contributors. And honestly, take that principle and apply it to, to your, your neighborhood, like the place that you live in Madison, like that geographical area. I think so often we look at like, what are the perks, what are the benefits, what are the things that I can get out of this? But, but as Christians, what Paul is calling us to in verse 24 is to flip that script and we move somewhere and say, how, how can I serve? How can I build up? How can I contribute? It's this simple paradigm shift, but it is easier said than done, is it not? Because for me, when I, you know, when I move from like the principle of verse 24 and I actually try to like bring it into my life and picture what it would look like for me to live like this, to, to open myself up like this, I feel excited on one hand, but I also feel scared. I feel exposed. 
I feel, I feel vulnerable if I was to live with this kind of open-handed, open-armed way of living, seeking the benefit and the good of the people around me. The question that runs through my head is, if I start to live like that, then who's going to take care of me? <laughs> if, I, if I'm trying to take care of everybody else, if I'm, if I'm kind of living for their benefit, who's going to live for my benefit? So look how he deals with this. Look at verse 25 through 27. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's quoting scripture there. He's quoting the Psalms. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Okay, so pause for a second. We talk, we've been talking about this whole food sacrifice to idols thing for the last couple of weeks, and so if you've missed any of those messages, go back and listen to them. But, but in short, basically these Corinthian Christians... They were having a hard time knowing whether or not they were free to eat this meat that was sacrificed in the meat markets because it was sacrificed to these false gods, these idols. But it's like, this is, their, this is where you get meat. This is their grocery store. So they, they just didn't know what to do. They didn't know if they were going to be disobedient to God and eating it or not. And, and one of the things that Paul has been saying is actually like he's giving them this theology that, hey, meat, meat is just literally like food from animals that God has, has made. You know, God's the one that made it. If you eat it with thankfulness and worship to him, rather than as an offer to an idol, then you're good. Eat it. But I want you to notice something here. Paul, in 24, has just finished, you know, exhorting us to to seek not our own good, but the good of our neighbor. But then in the same breath, he basically says, and so go to the grocery store and get yourself a steak. He says, hey, and, and if your neighbor invites you over to their backyard barbecue in Corinth, like, eat whatever's set before you and, and enjoy it. So this is a picture not of, of scarcity. This is, this is a picture of, of not of, like, serving others and then living off the scraps that are left over. This is actually a picture of abundance. This is a picture of serving others and enjoying the abundance of all that God has for everyone. But that, that feeling, that hesitation that I have, it, it's from this lurking scarcity mindset in my heart, right? That makes me so self-serving, thinking that I've got to look out for myself because no one else is going to do that for me. But the theology that Paul is grounding all of this in, verse 26, look at it. It says, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Think about that. The earth, everything here, it's, it's the Lord's. And it's a place of fullness. It's a place of abundance. And this means we are free to serve others because there is actually plenty to go around if we would open up our hands, open up our perspectives. Because we've been born into a universe where there is a creator. <laughs> There's a creator. And the earth belongs to him in all of its fullness. Paul, he's saying we live, you and I, we live in a world of fullness, not emptiness. Abundance, not scarcity. And so, so even if you are, as you try to think about this in your own situation, if you're in a spot where you can clearly see how you could position yourself as a servant, but you would honestly say, I don't know if in doing that I can really expect that anyone else is going to have my back. A workplace, a, a relationship, whatever it is. And, and this happens all the time. This happens all the time. Many of us are probably in at least one scenario like that. And so it can be hard to hear of like, hey, op- open yourself up. But if you're in a situation like that, what Paul would say is, hey, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. 
And you know what else is the Lord's? You. You're free to serve because he's got you. And he actually served you first. Paul, he's been saying this actually for a couple chapters. If, if you were to remember back to chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, Paul, he reminded us of this very reality. And he said, hey, do you not know that your body, it's a, it's a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? Therefore, you're, you're not your own because you were bought with a price. In other words, the whole earth is the Lord's and you are the Lord's and you are not your own, which means you are not on your own. You are not on your own in this world. He bought you with a price, meaning you are extremely valuable to him. He cares about you. He cares about what happens to you. Every ounce and every drop of the blood of Jesus was not wasted. It's saying something about the value that he has placed on you now as a child of God. Okay, and in Mark chapter 10, Jesus, he comes onto the scene, and one of the places where he basically like announces his, his mission statement, this is what I came to do. Do you know what he says? He says, I came to serve, not to be served, and to give my life as a ransom for many. And again, in John chapter 10, he, he tells us, Jesus, he says, here's why I came up and I gave up the fullness of my life. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus, he serves us out of his abundance so that we can serve others out of our newfound abundance. That's the exchange that happens. And one of my favorite illustrations of this in the Bible, in the New Testament, is in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. Some of you guys have, have heard this story, and to just kind of grab a part of it to illustrate this, in the story, there's this woman who is at a well. Jesus meets her in this not-so-chance encounter, right? And as he's talking to her, it turns out that this is a woman who she really is pretty much all on her own. It would make total sense by the standards of the world that she should look out for herself, Like right? She probably doesn't think she has much to offer to the world. And you know what Jesus comes up to her and says? He says, hey, I'd, I'd like to serve you. I'd like to make you an offer. I'd like to offer you living water, okay? And he ends up meaning like, a life-giving relationship with me. Okay, living water, a life-giving relationship with me that can actually transform your story from one of scarcity to one of abundance. And in their conversation, Jesus, he acknowledges that she will never truly get from human relationships or jobs or roles on this earth the thing that she really needs, the thing that she really longs for deep down. He says, everyone who drinks of that water will be thirsty again. But then in talking about himself, he says, whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Because the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus Christ, he wants to serve you by giving you himself. By giving you this life-giving relationship with himself, an endless supply of everything you truly need. That's the offer of the gospel. The offer on the table from Christianity, if you're, if you're wondering here this morning, what is the good news? What is this all about? The offer on the table of Christianity is you get God. You get something you don't deserve, a relationship with him. You get his mercy in exchange for your sin. You get to belong to the creator of the universe in all of his fullness. And because you belong to him, Jesus says, listen to what he says. He says, you're going to become like a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
you got to grab that image in your head. He says, I'm going to give you myself. You're going to become like a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Like you can picture this life-giving river of a person just flowing forever from God as your source. There's a song that we sing about this. We sang it last week. It's called Come Thou Fount. Come Thou Fount of, of Every Blessing. Tune my heart to sing your grace. Streams of mercy, never ceasing. Calls for songs of loudest praise. If you're wondering what the heck that song is about, <laughs> that's what this is about. Come thou fount. God is the fount. He's the fountainhead. It's a water metaphor, right? The fountainhead of every blessing. And then we, his people that have been called to himself, we Christians, we're meant to be like these, like these rivers, these channels of blessing in the world because we are continually, endlessly being blessed and empowered by God. We serve others because he serves us. And so let me ask you just a diagnostic question here. Would the people that know you say that you feel like a, like a channel of blessing in their life? A life-giving presence? Do they feel helped by you? Do they feel built up by you? Because that's who you could be if you would tap into all that God has for you. Now, I know that, that some of you here, you are actually, uh, whether by spiritual maturity or personality, you're actually like a great servant. You're a great helper. You're somebody that, that gives and gives and gives, but there's actually a ditch that you can fall into on that side, and it's called being a people pleaser. Somebody, somebody knew where I was going. People pleaser, okay? So let's talk about people pleasing for a second. Any people pleasers in here? Is that any, anybody here? Okay. So if you look down at verse 33, look there. Paul, he says, what does he say? I try to please everyone in everything that I do. That's like the people pleaser's motto. And what I want you to do is I want you to grab onto that. It's a good thing to try to please people, Paul's saying, but that statement, it needs to be interpreted through the rest of the whole, okay? And specifically verse 24. So now look back at verse 24. It says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And the key word in that sentence is good. Seeking the good. Paul says this principle is based on seeking their, their good. And so parents in the room, let me ask you a question, okay? Is everything that your child asks for and wants that would please them good for them? No, it, it is not. Now, now, hypothetically speaking, let's just say that last weekend I had my boys all to myself and it was Saturday night and I'm at the end of my rope. My wife's out of town. I'm hanging on literally by a thread and let's just say they want to get ice cream after we've had plenty of sugar already during the day, but I cave in, again, hy hypothetically, we go to the chocolate shop ice cream store, and let's just say we're at the counter, and both boys are pointing at, like, the jumbo waffle cone with, like, the chocolate encrusted over it, meant for adults, not toddlers. And let's just say in a moment of exhaustion and, and inability to comprehend, I'm like, yes, you can have it. And then let's just say they point both at different types of ice cream and they both want two scoops, two adult-sized scoops of an ice cream cone. Let's just say that would happen. Help me think about this in case that scenario ever happens. Should I do it? Should I do it? Would that be good for them? It would please them. No! I did it. I did it. I did it. I did it. And I sent, I sent, Caitlin, I sent Caitlin a picture and she was like, what are you doing? 
But we know this, right? We, we know, we know that not everything that would please someone is actually good for them. We also know that sometimes our real motive as the people pleaser is actually selfish. It's actually incurvitous. Like we want them to like us. We want to avoid conflict. A million other reasons. We're actually seeking our own good and not theirs. So look at how Paul deals with this now in verse 27. Okay, so verse 27 he says, okay, so, but if, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever's set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So yeah, just eat it, just go. But, but, if someone says to you, hey, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. So his decision-making filter has now changed. Then do not eat it. Why? For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced of that which I give thanks? All right, so we got to imagine together that we are at a Corinthian backyard barbecue at our, at our neighbor's house, okay? So transport yourself back to that time, and you know, okay, as a, as a Christian, and we've been hearing from Paul for a couple chapters, we already know that that meat that we're eating has probably actually been sacrificed to idols. We know that, but we also know that when we eat it, we're going to eat it in thankfulness and worship and gladness to God, not as idol worship. And so Paul says, don't worry about it. Don't even ask about it. Just eat it. You're fine. But then if verse 28 happens where your neighbor actually comes out and says, hey, just so you know, this has been offered to idols, he says, then, then don't eat it. And so you've got to imagine that for a second. It's like you've got the, I just picture them eating lamb shanks back then, just like a giant lamb shank in, in a hand. You've got it in your hand, and right before you're about to take a bite, your neighbor says, hey, now by the way, that lamb is going to taste extra good because I just offered it to Athena earlier, and you're going to be very blessed in, in eating that because Athena, she really likes lamb shanks, and I think she likes you. So that's what your neighbor says. And now you're in this awkward spot, right, where, where you don't want to offend him. You don't want to be rude. You, you really actually want to eat it to the glory of God, right? Why don't you just take a bite? The, the commentators, as you try to figure this out, they'll actually say that the example Paul's giving here, it probably would have happened quite often, and it's actually probably an example of an unbelieving neighbor, so a neighbor that does not worship God, is, is worshiping idols, knowing that you're a Christian. Okay, they know there's a difference between you. They, they know that there's something about this that would be a compromise of your faith. They, they know it. They know that what you'd be doing and worshiping and eating this food would be, would be idol worship and, and some commentators think that there, this is actually like an example of they're offering you a courtesy way out, saying like, hey, like, I don't know if you should, like, are you sure you should do this? Because to eat the meat at this point would be to communicate to your neighbor, I can worship Jesus Christ and I can worship idols. Okay, and, and in our culture today, our culture is, is very secular, right? We don't believe in a transcendent God kind of largely and culturally, we don't believe in the supernatural and so our, our friends that are, that are not Christians, they're not going to knowingly, consciously worship supernatural false gods. Like, this scenario is just not going to happen for us. Like, we're not going to face this at a backyard barbecue. But, but let me just pull the, the principle out here, okay? Because it's really important for us. And this, this principle, we have an opportunity to live this out all the time with our neighbors. Okay, so, so here it is. The first level of it, right, from Paul is seek the good of your unbelieving neighbors. That's the first level of the principle, but then a little bit deeper, it would be this. Paul would say, hey, and the greatest good 
for your unbelieving neighbor is to make the gospel as clear as possible to them. Make the gospel as clear as possible, or to state it negatively, the greatest harm that you could ever do to one of your neighbors is to somehow confuse them about the nature of the gospel. So for a Corinthian Christian to eat the meat in the verse 28 scenario, it would actually be an affirmation of idolatry. It would be to preach a false gospel, right? It could be interpreted as the neighbor, as I belong to Jesus, but I'd also like some extra blessing from one of the city's idols, or I just don't want to offend you, and so you're kind of my idol. And so the question for us, okay, back in our land now, becomes, is there anything that you are doing that is actually preaching a false gospel to somebody around you that doesn't know Jesus? Or maybe lesser, just anything that's making it unclear. You know, money is one of the biggest idols in our, in our culture, and so if there's, if there's something about the way that you, you stress about your money or hold on so tightly to your money or spend your money, just something that you're doing with your money that's visible to the people around you that you think actually could be communicating, hey, Jesus doesn't really take care of me, so I also need to hold on tightly to this, or a million different examples. If if there's something going on with that, you could be confusing people about the gospel. You could be preaching a false gospel with the way that you handle your money. Okay, and we asked the question last week, what does our life say about what we worship? And Paul, he's continuing on here to say, seek the good of your neighbor by making the gospel as clear as possible to them with your life. He's calling us beyond niceness and beyond politeness. He's calling us to seek their good. And the ultimate good that we could ever give them is the gospel, as Paul says, so they could be saved. Look at verse 32. It says, So give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And so some of you uh, people pleasers in the room today, you need to hear that, that what you're doing, hear me, is ultimately not good for people. And ultimately, it's not about them, it's about you. It's, it's self-serving. And hear me, if you put people at the center of your life, if you need their affirmation, if you need their validation and their approval so much, it is going to crush them, and it is going to constantly disappoint you. And beyond that, you're never going to share the gospel with them for fear of rejection. People pleasers will not advance the mission of God. So Paul's saying. So to, to move towards bringing this to a close, I think one of the questions that I ask next is, is how can we open ourselves up like this, like Paul is calling us to, but without sliding into being people pleasers, right? He's like, we don't, we don't want to be self-centered, but we also don't want to be people-centered. So look at verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. There it is. For Paul, this is the highest principle and value of life. Don't be people-centered, be God-centered. Okay, do everything ultimately for his glory. Jesus, he put it like this in Matthew 22 when he said, hey, you know, the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, but the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And hear me, a healthy sustainable application of the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor, flows out of a centering on that first 
greatest commandment, to love God alone and above everything. And so what does it mean to, to do everything for the glory of God? Well, in a negative sense, it means don't let anyone or anything take an essential place in your life, right? Like we talked about last week, say no to false worship. Don't be like Narcissus, who is looking into this pond, basically worshiping himself and closing himself off from the outside world. It's to say no to sin, because when we sin, it doesn't glorify God. It actually reflects poorly on the character of God to a watching world. And it definitely means all those things in the negative sense, but the tone that I get from Paul here is very much in the positive sense. He is leaning forward in verse 31. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. I picture him at like a giant banquet table feast with a drink in his hand and just saying, do it all for the glory of God with joy in his heart and a smile on his face and maybe some like food dripping down his mouth or something like that. He's like, live full tilt in your life for the glory of God. Do everything. Enjoy everything in a way that points to the greatness of God. There is a famous statement in one of the famous church catechisms from the Westminster Catechism It says this, it says that the chief end of mankind, the chief end, anyone know what it is? To enjoy God and glorify him forever. Or to put it in the reverse, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what we were made for. That is our our chief end. And so every no in the Christian life, every no to idolatry, every no to sin, every no to our freedom is a yes to that statement, what we were made for. That's why we say no to sin. It brings more glory to God. We say no to being like a stagnant pond of a person, a cesspool of self-absorption. I know that those both start with S, but that's how I wrote it down. We don't want to be that. We don't want to be a cesspool. We want to be what Jesus is talking about in John 4, of like this wellspring of life, this life-giving river, a channel of blessing flowing out of God into the world. It brings him glory. It brings us joy. And I know that on a random Sunday morning in May that this sounds a little bit high and lofty, right? We're talking about the chief end of man. We're talking about living everything for the glory of God. It feels kind of motivational, but maybe not super actionable. And the first thing I want to say to you is this. Number one, we need a high and lofty vision of God like this. We, we need to connect deeply and often with this vision of God for our lives. That is the only thing that pulls us out of this state of incurvitus. There's a song that we sing. We need to sing it more. We only sing it at Christmas time, but it's called Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. You guys got, got it? You don't know what that is? Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. God of glory, Lord of love. Now, listen to this picture. Hearts unfold like flowers before thee, opening to the sun above. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness. Drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness. Fill us with the light of day. Only a sight of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He, he compares it in the song to the sun. Only a, a sight of God's glory can make your curved in, sinful, self-centered heart curve out and open like a flower before him. And on the mountain called Golgotha, on on the cross, Jesus Christ, he's hanging up there on the cross and it gets dark and there are these dark clouds hovering over him as the wrath of God is pouring down on him and as he is opening up his life for us and the song goes, melt the clouds of sin and sadness. Drive the dark of doubt away. 
giver of immortal gladness, fill us with the light of day. This is what Jesus died for. This is the glory of Christ on the cross. And it is the only thing powerful enough to open up my heart, to love my neighbor, and to love him. So the second thing I would tell you about why we need, why, why this feels high and, and lofty is that I actually, I love, if you've noticed, Paul, he's, he's got this like big calling that he's talking about, but he's writing about it playing out in like the smallest of contexts that you could think of. The grocery store, right? The meat market, the dinner table, the backyard barbecue, the context that Paul is calling the Corinthians to live this out in is as we say at Doxa, the everyday stuff of life. Just right there on the ground. What we do when we go to the grocery store, how we live in our neighborhoods, how to to not just eat food, which we all know how to do, but how to eat food and, as he says, partake with thankfulness, eating and drinking to the glory of God. I I do this every day. I try to connect with this text as we pray before our meal. Like so so simple, so unremarkable. It most of the time feels so not powerful, at all, but me and my family around the table, we just say, God, we, we, we thank you for this, we enjoy this, we eat this for your glory, and then I, I make all kinds of noises as I eat the food as an act of worship, <laughs> and as I'm enjoying it. But I'm telling you, you think for your own life what this means, but this is where this text is taking us. It's calling us to live for the glory of God and the good of people all around us in the everyday stuff of life. And if you've been around DOXA for a little while or if you're new and you've looked on the website, that should sound awfully familiar because it's basically our mission statement for the glory of God and the good of of Madison. And so I just want to end by by calling us to a couple things that I think they, they flow out of this text. This is what Paul would call us to do. This is what he's calling the Corinthians to do. This is what we need to do as Christians in Madison. And the first is we should be Madison's best neighbors. We should be the best neighbors in Madison because of what Jesus Christ has, has done for us. We should be the kind of people that add value to the places that we live and we work and we play. They're, they're better because we're there. We should be the kind of people that people actually want to invite to barbecues, right? And I know it's kind of like a little weird with the way this past year has gone and everything with COVID and everything, but as, that, as we start to get back to backyard barbecues, we should have relationships with people and they should say, I want that person at my Barbecue. They, they bring like a life-giving presence when they come. I want, I want them there. And more than that, we need to learn to become the type of people that can turn those types of backyard barbecue conversations into gospel conversations. We need to bring more than just good presence. We need to actually learn to bring the good news. We need to love people more than we want to please people, be bold enough to face rejection, and above all, I want to please God more than we want to please man. We should be Madison's best neighbors because of Jesus Christ. And then second, but related, we should be Madison's like most joyful citizens. <laughs> I, I, really, I really think this. Because of our life-giving relationship with Jesus who came and he abundantly poured himself out so that we could live an abundant life, an eternal life that starts now, we should, we should be people that live in, in truly a world of scarcity, cursed by sin, so broken. Like there's, we have other sermons that really acknowledge that, but this sermon is about acknowledging in a sin-cursed world, we should be like people that are channels and rivers of blessing, cutting through a sin-cursed world. People who, who have found a way to actually be generous with our finances, even though we've got the same jobs as everyone else. 
but generous rather than stingy with our finances. People who are humbled and thankful rather than entitled about all of the great food and recreation that is in this city. I'm, I'm serious. There should be a tone about us of just humble, joyful gratitude because the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof and we belong to him. People who are marked by a joy that seems to be coming from a source that is outside itself. Okay, this is who we were created to be. This is why Jesus Christ spread his arms wide on the cross, poured out his blood, drank every last drop of the judgment of God in our place so that we, his people, the people that he bought with a price, would no longer live curved in on ourselves, but open to God and to the world around us. And Doxa, if we can live into that, if we can become more and more those type of people, God is going to get so much more of the glory that he deserves in this city. We are going to experience so much more of the joy that is on the table for us in Jesus Christ and our neighbors, and our friends, and our family, they do not know that joy. Many of them could be saved. So would you join me in praying to that end? Father, we are joyful, joyful. We adore you. You are the Lord of glory. You are the Lord of love. God, there's, there's still so much sin and selfishness in our hearts, but we ask that even, even now as we've, we've opened your word and we're gonna, we're gonna stand and respond in singing, would you do something in, in the worship to open our hearts more to you? Open our hearts up to your glory. Open our hearts out to the world. Open us up, God. We don't wanna live sad, self-absorbed lives. God, we want to live into all that you are and all that you have for us, God. Lives of, of sacrifice and risk because you risked it all for us on the cross. We worship you now, the Lord of glory. In Jesus' name.